of the phoniest phrases in modern kind of contemporary language is quality time. There is only one form of quality time, that's quantity time. <laughs> and you feel happy now with the quantity of time you're able to spend with your kids? Broadly, yes. It, it fluctuates, but um, I think I definitely made the right call. I think, put it this way, it's an awful lot better than it would have otherwise been had I stayed. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live. A life with pleasure, meaning and richness of spirit. The life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes and social justice campaigners. With people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. I first met Lindsay Tanner in uh, the 1990s when I was a 20-something whippersnapper working in Parliament House. He projected confidence with a touch of gruffness, and he seemed to run his own race. It was a time when Labor was pursuing a small target strategy, and Lindsay produced a provocative book titled Open Australia, which, among other things, advocated the structural separation of Telstra. The book was gleefully quoted back at him by Howard Government Ministers in Parliament, uh, an experience that I've known something of in recent years. But within less than a decade, most people realised that Lindsay Tanner had been right. Open Australia was followed by other books that looked at loneliness, at the media and public life. As Finance Minister and the Rudd Government, he was at the centre of the response to the global financial crisis. Uh, when I was pre-selected as Labor candidate in 2010, one of the things I was most excited about was that I'd get to serve in Parliament alongside one of my Labor heroes. Wasn't to be. The day after Julia Gillard became Prime Minister, Lindsay Tanner announced he was retiring for family reasons. He's now a special advisor to financial firm Lazard Australia, an adjunct professor at Victoria University, and the chairman of Essendon Football Club. Lindsay, thanks very much for uh, joining me here today. Thank you. Let's start with the resignation. You said it was for family reasons, but my sense at the time was no one believed you. There was a lot of scepticism about it, but it was ill-founded. People always lurch to the conspiracy in politics, unfortunately. Believe it or not, I'd actually told Kevin Rudd three weeks earlier that I was planning to step down, and he persuaded me to hold off on the announcement until the end of Parliament, because obviously we were in deep trouble on a range of fronts, particularly the mining tax. And I was very concerned not to unduly aggravate the government's difficulties, so I was happy to acquiesce. Uh, but the, the simple illustration of the fact that it had nothing to do with the change of leader was that I bought and moved into a country property a very long way away from my electorate in mid-May, well before there was any hint of Kevin being replaced by Julie Gillard. You'd been in politics then for 17 years. How did you find balancing work and family? Well, given by that stage I was on my third marriage, uh, the answer by a lot of trial and error, and unfortunately politics is one of those occupations where you have to go at it 100% all the 
particular time and there are no natural limits and being an intensely sort of competitive beast as I am, uh, I unfortunately kind of failed to heed the warning signs and failed to look after my personal relationships as well as I should have until it was too late. Uh, and having already been through that for trade union movement to my first marriage, I suppose I should have learned my lesson from that and I didn't. Uh, and I got to a point where I had two young girls who were then, uh, what were they, four and six I think, and two kids who were in early teenage stage from my previous marriage. Uh, I'd been in Parliament 17 and a half years or whatever it was. Uh, realistically, the best I was likely to be uh, able to hope for for the next term, if I held my seat against the Greens, was another term of being Finance Minister. There weren't too many other portfolios I was that keen on moving to. Three years, six years as Finance Minister is hardly a huge difference. And now as uh, a dad outside politics, what is it to you that uh, that's, that's important to you in being a good dad? Being able to communicate with your kids, obviously at, at different stages of their lives, it becomes uh, you know, a different phenomenon. Like I'm, I would concede that I'm not great at communicating with two year olds. Um, but uh, I have thankfully still got a really strong relationship with the two kids in my second marriage who I've lived with since I was five and two, uh, and in varying ways really back then. Uh, my son, for example, is now at college in California pursuing his basketball dreams, and I've been really committed to helping him pursue that. My daughter, who's in her final year of primary teaching degree, I've also given as much support as I can. Uh, so, uh, look, I think engagement is the right word. And one of the comments I made in one of my books about these issues is that one of the phoniest phrases in modern kind of contemporary language is quality time. There is only one form of quality time, that's quantity time. <laughs> and you feel happy now with the quantity of time you're able to spend with your kids? Broadly, yes. It, it fluctuates, but um, I think I definitely made the right call. So I, I think, put it this way, it's an awful lot better than it would have otherwise been had I stayed. Yes. Tell me about your own parents and uh, how they shaped you and uh, your, the political being that you grew into. Um, weird mixture because my parents were an orange and green marriage. My father was uh, Church of England from a fairly robustly anti-Catholic sort of background. My mother was Irish Catholic. Uh, I used to uh, prod my opponents, my DLP grouper opponents in the clerkship by pointing out that my mum was confirmed by Archbishop Mannix at St. Joe's in West <laughs> which they were very unimpressed by. Uh, and my, they were, my father was a member of the National Party, in fact they both were. Um, my father was Peter Nixon's first FEC chairman when he first got elected to the federal parliament for the seat of Gippsland in 1961 and remained very close. He was also a local councillor for many years in Orbos. My mum worked for Peter Nixon in his electorate office from 1975 to 1983. But interestingly, she was a classic product of an old Labour Catholic social justice kind of cultural background. Uh, so uh, she you know, it's still very um, uh, deeply religious. 
religious person and uh, yeah, very typically uh, Catholic social justice in her outlook. So I think indirectly that had a lot of impact on me. Um, my father, probably what I got from him was just that politics and that world was real. So I can, I can vividly remember when Harold Holt around, I was 11 years old and I was down at the, this place called Cape Condon where there were a dozen or so permissive occupancy shacks, which we, we had use of one, we didn't own it. Peter Nixon owned another one and I can remember him uh, being called dramatically to Canberra because of the Holt Browning, because he was a junior minister at the time. I can remember also being somewhat surprised that John McEwen was not allowed to stay as Prime Minister because, of course, I you know, felt some affinity with the then Country Party and he was Prime Minister for about a month or so after Holt drowned. Uh, so I think <coughs> the significance it really was was that as a child, politics and that world was not alien to me even though it was a different kind of world and the notion of representation and leadership you know even if it was you know like my father being on the council that sort of stuff that these were not alien things to me these were normal kind of things so how did the boy with the dlp mum get shaped through the eras of woodstock and vietnam that sort of more libertarian well, liberal permissive kind of uh, really era. really a combination of three things being exposed to it was sort of woodstock and whitlam uh, superimposed on six years of a nasty authoritarian boarding school experience. So on the one side, I'm chafing against this you know, country boarding school in sale, very authoritarian, uh, very good academically. It's Gippsland Grammar School. It's very good academically and very good now. Uh, but the boarding school in those days was very much run on kind of Broadly, the same mentality that has pro that produced forced adoptions of um, unmarried teenage mums, babies, um, the stolen generation, uh, uh, sexual abuse in institutions. There was a, a mentality across the whole society in the 50s and 60s that basically children were objects and you could do pretty much whatever you liked to them. Uh, and the the boarding school had a kind of similar mentality. So on the one hand, I'm chafing against that. And on the other hand, that whole upsurge of sort of cultural upheaval that was driven both by popular music uh, and all of the sort of often wacky stuff associated with that, but Woodstock was really the, the pivotal kind of iconic thing of that, together with the emerging Whitlam program and critique were very powerful and finally, uh, I kind of fell in love with George Orwell and, um, and I read a lot. I, I uh, was big on history and economics and stuff, so all those things came together. And um, uh, mostly, I think, underneath it all, I associated the, the Conservatives with the people who ran the school. To me, they were all part of the same thing. And so they were part of the same broadly hypocritical, backward-looking, petty, small-minded sort of ruling class. I just disliked instinctively. And on top of that, you were also growing up in a state where conservative governments were the norm, weren't they? They were, and this is one point that I don't think many people understand about the problems that Labor has had in recent times, that 
in the early 80s, we went from the perennial losers to the perennial winners overnight. And we paid a very big price for that transformation. So uh, I, when I joined the Labor Party in the mid-70s, the one reason nobody joined was career advancement. You would, you'd have to be sort of clinically insane <laughs> to join the Victorian Labor Party in the mid-70s because you wanted to make a career out of it. Like the, at that point, there was only kind of one, or they just turned into two staff members in the electorate office. You know? So the kind of plethora of job opportunities that we now take for granted in that political world just didn't exist. But what then happened was post-82, 83, when you had the Kane government, Hawke government in office throughout the 80s, is that suddenly we, the Victorian Labor Party, turned from the no-hopers into the dominant political force, and there were lots of job opportunities and uh, an associated cultural change that came off that, and it produced a, a generation of people, I think, with an entitlement mentality and nothing like the sense of drive to make things better and to remedy injustice that had driven earlier generations in the Labor Party. Did you find yourself a natural political figure in, in your time in the Clarks Union and then in the federal parliament? Oh, in certain respects, no. One of the things that I had, had to adapt to, and I fortunately had the opportunity in student politics uh, running successfully to edit Farago, the student newspaper, and we, Pete Russ and I were the only, only the second team to be directly elected by students, so previously it had been appointed by the SRC. Um, and that was at the age of 20, I think, uh, to sudden and, and still, you know, so this is, when was I, um, yeah, this is, yeah, 1976, uh, to be suddenly thrust into a world where I was approaching all these people I'd never met, sitting at cat tables, asking them to vote for me. I was getting up and making speeches in front of lectures of 400 and 500 people and stuff, which... Uh, kind of intellectually I was fine with, but emotionally I'm not a particularly outgoing kind of person. I'm not the sort of person who wants to walk into a room and immediately start sort of talking to most interesting and significant people or whatever. Uh, so that was a, an interesting transition I have to make. And of course then in the Clarks Union I had to do it kind of on steroids because I had to inveigle my way into wherever there were members and kind of buttonhole these people who half the time barely knew they were in a union, let alone what on earth I was talking about. You know, so these are very good training grounds for kind of the core skills of politics. So for an introvert who wants to get into politics, what, um, how does your experience uh, advise them? Everything in life ultimately comes down to one thing, purpose. Right? Uh, everything. So... Ultimately, if you have sufficient purpose and sufficient clarity and genuineness and seriousness of purpose, then it kind of doesn't matter very much. Uh, so the, the real key is never confuse means with ends. Unfortunately, we now have a lot of people in national politics and elsewhere who think the means are the ends. You know, I think the reason they're engaged in all this stuff is in order to win an election. Uh, and that, that there's this kind of sporting contest or video game mentality that's taken hold. So the, the critical question is, why do you want to do this stuff? 
it's, it, if you want to do it for very powerful, very strong reasons, then your innate suitability or lack of suitability will always be a mixture of strong attributes that are naturally suited to the political world and other attributes that are probably not that suited. So I've got other attributes that are very well suited to it. I'm essentially very emotionally detached. It's very, very hard to offend me. Like, uh, very, very hard. And uh, yeah, so that everybody's a mixture of all these characteristics. And most people will have some attributes that are kind of positive for conducting political activity and others that aren't quite so. Um, the, my final bit of advice was to be, uh, be honest about all of those things to yourself. Do your best to understand yourself. Usually you'll be about my age before you, by the time you do, but uh, <laughs> at, least, at least it's kind of you know, make an attempt at it. Uh, and critical rule, don't try and be something you aren't. So to break that down for the kind of shy 17-year-old listener who's just arrived at university, wants to get involved in student politics, but finds the idea of asking a stranger for their vote to be terrifying, what do they do to, to get over that? Because in some sense, there's no way of getting elected without face-to-face -face winning the support of people. Have a good reason why that person should vote for you. So if you have got genuine passion and commitment to something, you're saying, you know, I, I, there, is, there is something distinctive about me and my commitment and what I can offer and what I'm proposing to do that is separate from just my self-interest and me advancing myself or self-importance, all that kind of stuff. That's the, the crucial thing, is that uh, you've actually got to be able to say, look, there's a really good reason why you you should be voting for me. Uh, that is all too often lost. Uh, in terms of, look, there, there'll be some people for whom this is, you know, it, it's kind of too terrifying and too alien, and the, the answer is, look, go off and be something else. You know, that, that there will be some people like that. But, you know, there are... It's like any other spectrum, you know, there's a relatively small number of people at the extremes and a vast number of people floating somewhere around in the intermediate zone. So yes, there are a small number of natural, super extroverted, mega charismatic, entertainer kind of, you know, Bob Hawke sort of characters um, who, for whatever reason, have got the combination of very high level of intelligence and also this innate belief that the entire universe revolves around them and that's the natural state of things. Bob, if you're listening, my apologies. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I say that in the nicest possible way, Bob, that it is actually core to your political success. Um, now, those people are rare. And when they turn up, they are likely to be very politically successful because they're just innately magnetic without having to try, without having to fake it. Uh, and at the other extreme, there are people who are kind of so bashful and so shy that they almost into the autism spectrum, and realistically, they should be doing something else. But most people, the vast majority of people, are going to be in between those extremes. And even if you are slightly introverted, um, you know, it doesn't matter. Like uh, my uh, one of my uh, 
interesting examples is John Walsfold at Essendon, who openly says you know, that he's basically an introverted character, but he has incredible self-awareness and uh, is in a game where, you know, in, a, in a role that's very similar to politics, where you've got huge responsibility, huge visibility, you've got to talk to a lot of people, you've got to be very convincing, you've got to lead, you've got to verbalise, all those kind of things. And he does that really well, and the key is that he understands who or what he is. He uh, approaches the whole thing in a way that means that at the end of the day it doesn't matter, and it's, you know, he's not he's not the hot gospeler type who's there, you know, banging the table and yelling at the players and inspiring them with speeches about the, you know, the battlefields of Gallipoli or any of that sort of stuff. Um, he's a, you know, particular style of coach, but he's both been very successful, of course, at West Coast and uh, has been remarkably good for Essendon thus far. So, you know, you get all kinds of different personalities. So, but I'd say don't stress too much about the real question is, why do you want to do this stuff? Yes. Well, let's move from the exterior to the interior. And uh, one of the figures who you've mentioned already, uh, George Orwell, seems to have had uh, uh, quite an influence on you. Why does Orwell, somebody who's, uh, who's been dead for more than 50 years, still matter? Um, look, I think uh, intellectual honesty. So uh, looking back on, I suppose, my, the entirety of my involvement in things remotely political, there's been a common underlying thread, which is a deep distaste for deception and sleight of hand and for shortcuts that ultimately are about misleading people. Now, there's always going to be an element in politics that's unavoidable, and in some cases it's a bit like the oil that wheels, uh, that, that uh, greases the machinery and so on, of you know, a bit of gilding the lily, a bit of slight deception and so on. So I'm not totally purist about it. But the, the core theme of the, the first book that I published with Peter Russ back in 1978, which is about the Victorian Environment Protection Authority, was our outrage at the fact that the then Victorian Liberal government had set up this institution to create an appearance of strict regulation of pollution at a time when it was a really big problem. Uh, but in truth, behind the facade, they were busily making sure it actually didn't do very much in order that the difficult knock-on questions that that involved didn't have to be tackled. And that to me was outrageous. So I, I, my kind of underlying personality, I think, in all this has always been intellectual honesty is what matters. Stand up and argue for stuff, fight your case, and don't, you will eventually uh, both bring yourself undone discredit progressive politics, ultimately discredit democracy if your business model in politics is to pretend that you are on about something different from what you are on about and rely on kind of people being distracted or not sufficiently interested or engaged or educated to work out what's going on. So it's one of the reasons that I'm a huge admirer of Paul Keating is that he had the guts just to stand up and say, no, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it, and if you don't like it, bad luck, vote me out. You know, that's the kind of... Uh, sort of model of politics and, and intellectual clarity and honesty that I admire. And all, if nothing else, was 
absolutely intellectually honest. So when uh, McGregor Duncan and I surveyed federal politicians in 2010 and asked what people were reading, all came top of the list for Labor and Coalition people. But Coalition people loved his fiction and Labor people loved his non-fiction. Uh, what's your favourite Orwell work? Uh, that's really interesting because um, I'm uh, always very concerned that Orwell's fiction is underrated and uh, neglected. Um, and well, and it also, it's really in two categories. So there's Animal Farm 1984, which are kind of quasi-fiction because they're basically didactic and, uh, um, yeah, and, and Animal Farm's kind of like a written cartoon, whereas uh, I suppose you could say 1984 is more like orthodox fiction, but it is extremely didactic and, you know, style-wise and so forth, probably not up there. I'm the proud owner, by the way, of the first edition of 1984, which um, I'm told is now worth quite a lot of money. Um, not that I care about that, but it's interesting that it, that it is. Yes. Uh, and uh, his more orthodox fiction, um, some of it's clunky. The early stuff like Clergyman, A Clergyman's Daughter and Burmese Days. Uh, like There's lots of good, interesting social insights in it, like the corrupting nature of imperialism in Burmese Days. Uh, the kind of... Uh, class that all famously dubbed the shabby genteel, mm. which are, his his acute sense of class, yes, and and external attributes of class. Oh, shooting right. an elephant is just yeah, extraordinary. Exactly, yeah. um, but my favourite. Uh, so so I don't sit back to you know tell well actually I love this one. My favourite of his orthodox fiction, which I did a big thing at Melbourne Uni earlier this year about, um, is coming up for air, which was the last of his novels, written. The, the last of the orthodox novels, written while he was ill in Morocco at the end of 1938 and published in 1939. And it's, a, it's essentially about the uh, how fraudulent nostalgia is. I don't know if you've read it, but it is a fantastic no. novel. It's written in the first person. It's a bloke called George Bowling, who's a gone-to-seed middle-aged insurance salesman um, who decides that... He is going to go back to the then what was then rural village that he grew up in pre the First World War, and this is uh, which and he served in the First World War, and he goes back and it's a huge disappointment because it's now a kind of grubby manufacturing town. It's a sort of commuter town, and all of the iconic things that his hazy memory, you know, all the good things, are sort of seem to disappear, and it's. Um, Superbly written, very evocative, uh, and and I think much underrated as a as a serious piece of fiction. Um, it's interesting the liberals are reading all. Uh, I'm a bit, bit surprised about that actually. Almost universally, 1984 and Animal Farm, and yeah. I guess it's the sort of uh, allegories of communism, and and so it's it's in some sense. Uh, uh, an echo down from uh, from Cold War from the Cold War. Well, and, and essentially, although they're both about totalitarianism, Animal Farm's about communism, and uh, 1984's about fascism. You know, that's pretty much how it works. Yes, yes. So, I mean, you mentioned before the sort of uh, the falsity of nostalgia, and I guess one of the things about 
living a good life is, uh, is, is being able to react to adversity. I know you as Chair of Essendon had to speak to the players after their Court of Arbitration in Sport decision. Um, were there, well I guess, first, firstly what did you say to them and also how did your own experience of dealing with adversity shape uh, your message to them? Well, I did comment to a few people at the time that having spent a lifetime in the Labor Party, I have a lot of practice with dealing with disasters and adversity. <laughs> um, and, and that uh, the crisis that I was now immersed into, in was nothing like what I lived through in the, in the Clarks Union when I became Secretary of the Clarks Union. So um, uh, all that Labor Movement background, I think, has proved remarkably valuable. Just... Uh, Basically because it means that, to me, turbulence is situation normal. So sort of surprise disasters, massively complicated moving sort of dramas where your capacity to continue with something remotely resembling business as usual while you're dealing with this kind of multifaceted kind of shambles uh, is put to the test. That situation is normal me and so I think that's been helpful to the club that whereas in other periods maybe I wouldn't have been the right person to be in the position but I think I'm definitely the right person at the moment. Um, what did I say to the players? Uh, a number of things but the main thing was this uh, which was to say and, and obviously this is a summary uh, I've never played AFL football much as I wanted to um, but my impression from outside is that for those who do, every day of your career you are effectively being asked, how good are you? This year you guys are all going to be asked every day a different question, who are you? And we are all going to be asked the same question and we will all collectively find out some very interesting things over the course of this year which is going to be very, very challenging. And then I used some examples, some illustrations, both for club members, supporters, and also players, saying, well, you know, how are you going to respond when X, when we're dealing with this challenge or that challenge or whatever? So that was basically the message. How do you think they're holding up? Oh, extremely well. And the, look, the, to me, the, the big thing underneath all this is that the club and its its supporter base, its coteries, it, that, that, that sort of wider ecosystem, but with the playing group at its heart, has definitively passed a huge character test. So a lot of clubs or equivalent organisations would have fallen apart under the pressure that Essendon's been under. Uh, and the fact that the playing group have remained competitive and remained resolute, and even when they've been beaten badly, they, like uh, against Adelaide, two weeks ago when we were heading towards what looked like a 20 goal defeat, they kicked the last three goals of the game. Now, not lying down when you are you know, on foreign territory, getting smashed by one of the best sides in the competition, uh, that's a sign these guys, they are really fighting hard to sustain competitiveness. Uh, and the, the kind of wider Essendon sort of family or whatever you might call it has also been remarkably resolute and also united and that's the other thing that's kept the show afloat. We haven't turned on it in on ourselves. So let me wrap up Lindsay by essentially 
uh, asking you a handful of questions that, that go to the, question, the, the, the issue of what others can learn from you about what it is to, to lead a good life. So how do you start each day? Uh, it, it depends if I'm coming, because I'm typically in at work in Melbourne three, sometimes four days a week. So if I'm not coming to work, I usually go for a run. Uh, sadly, my various parts of my body are kind of starting to fall apart. So speed is not the, uh, the main feature of this run. But I, and because I live in the country, I, you know, it is just superb. You know, it's running along a road between uh, Kyneton and Tilden sort of gum trees and, you know, pure air or whatever, that, that's really good. So that's, that's my preferred, that's how I'd like to start every day. Sadly, work commitments and physical frailty, I mean, I can only do that probably three days a week. Um, when I'm, uh, and also I'm, uh, some of the days I'm taking my daughters to the train because they go to school in Bendigo, so I've got to take them to the train. That's, yeah, it's a, to the, uh, the only thing that you'd say is out of the ordinary, yes, I have a shower, will be, most people do. Um, but the thing that's out of the ordinary is, yeah, I like to go for a run. And I find that's inc both incredibly, uh, like, it's a great mind clearing thing. I think of all kinds of things, a great op opportunity for me to toss around problems or things I'm thinking about, uh, but it also sets me up the day. Is that your main uh, avocation, your main uh, activity you use to clear your head? Oh, probably yes, but I do a whole heap of things. You know, unfortunately, one of my less worthy characteristics when I look back on my life is I have a, an appalling tendency to be a bit of a dabbler, and so I'm mediocre at an incredibly wide range of things. Um, Such as? Well, uh, Let's go through multiple sports, uh, playing cards. Um, you know, when a kid, I did a fair bit of painting. Uh, now, of course, I'm dabbling with writing novels. You know, so I'm, I, unfortunately, I kind of there's there's lots of good things to do and to try, and you know, I like giving things a try and sometimes get a bit sucked into them. I you know, I love. You know, I live on a 40-acre property. I do a lot of work on the property. I spend a lot of time chainsawing fallen tree branches and you know, chopping up firewood and fixing things and weeding gardens and you know, all that sort of stuff. Like there's a, a whole range of you know, burning rubbish and stuff. So I enjoy doing all that. Uh, so I do. I do have a tendency to you know, like doing lots of things and end up being ordinary at a very wide range of things. <laughs> so it's not a particularly admirable outcome, but, um, but you know, it means I enjoy myself. Like, you know, I can play snooker in a pretty ordinary way. You know, I've played at various stages, I've played quite a lot of pool. Um, you know, there's a whole list of stuff that I, you know, I played golf obsessively when I was a lot younger. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of things that I, you know, I, I play the piano reasonably seriously. Um, my one big indulgence when we moved the country was I bought a, a reconditioned Kawhi Baby Grand, which is a, a pretty reasonable, it's not in the Steinway sort of class, but it's Kawhi and Yamaha are basically the, they're the kind of, uh, you know, BMW of pianos, I suppose. Um, and so I've, 
recently just taught myself the first um, first movement of Ina Klein and Nacht music, which is quite good to play on the piano. Uh, so, you know, there's a whole heap of stuff that I kind of do average. What makes you most happy? Apart from Essendon winning. Um, <laughs> and, and sadly, uh, it's a very embarrassing thing to admit, but sadly, that's probably an honest answer. Ah, that's great. That's where we went. Um, Arsenal winning is sort of up there. Um, but oh, look, uh, it, it's an impossible question to answer because you can't compare, for example, one off. Uh, dramatic things versus continuous sort of, you know, so living in the country makes me happy. You know, and uh, um, messing around from a, a basic, uh, with horses for my dear beloved wife who's a serious equestrian person and therefore you know, we have currently four horses, you know, I enjoy doing all that, you know. I enjoy sort of just fluffing around, you know, clearing chainsawing tree limbs, and, you know, just all of that sort of agrio stuff I really enjoy. But how do you compare that with, you know, the fantastic Essendon victory? You, we can't because they're two fundamentally non comparable things. Um, so, no, too hard, actually. <laughs> Is there any bit of advice that you would give to teenage Lindsay Tanner if you were in the in the room with us? Don't join the Greens. Um, Is there a risk of that? Would, would teenage Lindsay oh, Tanner have been I've, tempted by joining the Greens? I, not tempted, I would have. Um, that's the sad thing, is that because um, I was an idealist and, and unfortunately encumbered with a, a very black and white kind of mind which gradually discovered a few minor shades of grey as I got older. Um, so no question, had you been able to take the me at the age of 19 at the time of the Whitlam dismissal with my view of the world and how I saw things and how I felt about things and transplant me into you know 2010 or whatever, I would have regarded the Labor Party with complete contempt and I would have joined the Greens without question. Um, and you know, partly because of ignorance, partly because of black and white mentality and, and lack of life experience and lack of understanding of different groups of people in society and so on. Um, but my main piece of advice, which I actually give to people, uh, young people, some of whom kind of turn up and almost say, look, uh, um, I've decided I want to become Prime Minister, can you tell me how to do it? To which I keep thinking to myself, I know they're going to say, Look, if I knew how to become Prime Minister, I'd bloody be the Prime Minister, you idiot. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, it, it is a bit kind of shocking that there are, you know, sort of 20-year-olds around who've got that mentality like I certainly did. Um, but my main bit of advice is make sure you have a life first. So, uh, the you might get an inside running by going from university to union or ministerial office to pre-selection, all those kinds of things. Um, but the 
eventually your lack of serious life experience of empathy and diversity of perspective will eventually tell if you do that. Yeah. It's, it's not something I wish to go into individualise about, but um, it is just so important to people to have some, you know, just diversity of life experience because uh, one of the problems with modern politics is a lot of cleverness and very little wisdom and you get wisdom from diversity of life experience. Is there a particular person or experience who shaped you into a more ethical person than you'd been before? Oh, without question. My former employer, Senator Barney Cooney, who you possibly know, um, the most unpolitician-like person who's ever been elected to public office in the history of the world, uh, the most self-effacing, honourable, decent, friendly, caring person you could ever imagine. So it's kind of a fluke that he ended up as a politician. Uh, and uh, hugely wise, a great reference point, and somebody who I think rubbed a lot of rough edges off me just by... Uh, just a, a, a real sense of decency and empathy for people and he like I worked in his office and he, he literally let me do whatever I liked including run a reform group in the union uh, and he would have these kind of lost souls who you know, who would come into the office from time to time and he'd end up paying their phone bill or something like that you know, and, and just and he would he would be sort of an hour and a half late for some appointment because one of them had turned up and he'd end up chatting and you know worrying through with them of some of their latest problems. So um, uh, a profoundly uh, influential figure and for me and in certain respects almost a surrogate father but uh, probably and I think this is the other key thing a good bit of advice seek out somebody to influence you who is different from you. So what Barney did for me, I think, was uh, exposed me to hugely positive influence of somebody with very different personality um, and therefore improved my ability to be a politician. Was he your prime mentor? Did you have others? Oh, Jerry Hand was very important in my emergence um, from being a sort of active, you know, Rank and file Jerry supported me getting on the Victorian Branch Admin Committee and of course supported me to succeed him in the seat of Melbourne. Um, and so to me, he was. Jerry was an old school Labour person in, in the, the best way possible. A, a fighter, person who passionately believed in the things he was doing and had a really strong sense of the Labour Party as a cause. Uh, so um, he was hugely influential on me. Peter Redlick uh, and Michael Schaefer from the three years I was holding Redlick, I learned different things from them. Michael Schaefer, I learned how, I learned a, a culture of representation and respect. You know, I consider I've been in the representation industry in different ways and respect for the personal group of people that you're representing and the importance of them understanding the process that you're all in and what you're seeking to do. I learned that from Michael Schaefer. From Peter Redlick, I learned this kind of, not that I probably needed to learn it, but he honed it, 
uh, sort of intense combativeness and just uh, Peter was remarkable. Like he, he used to kind of abuse clients and upset them or whatever, and, and sometimes I, they'd end up in my lap, and I used to say to him, "Well." Before you get too pissed off about how he's behaving towards you, imagine how he's behaving to the other side. <laughs> usually, <laughs> usually that sort of mollified them. Um, but Peter's um, clarity of thinking, like he was a, he's a guy who his cut through was just remarkable, whether it's legal or political situations. He was president of the Victorian Labor Party in 1975. If you imagine what a role that would have been. He used to be on TV on this Channel 7 show late every Sunday night as well. Um, so he was, he was a big influence on certain things. Um, my mother's been a, a very big influence on racing. So there's various people, most people like that, there'll be people who kind of influence them. And half the time you don't realise when it's happening. You, know, you only realise it in retrospect. You know, mm. But, mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, all kinds of things. But I have to take responsibility for the outcomes, though, not them. Yes, yes, as they say in uh, uh, journal footnotes, all errors are mine. Yes, yes. exactly. <laughs> um, what about, finally, in terms of your health? Is there a, what's the biggest change you've made to kind of improve your physical and mental health? Uh, only being on planes kind of 30 or 40 times a year, or whatever it is, rather <laughs> than 200. Um, oh. Yeah, look, just the intensity like it, the, the political life is weird because you know human beings are remarkably adaptable and so something that's totally crazy and extreme becomes normal one of the things that used to fascinate me was that a working day of 15 hours in canberra felt like nine or ten in melbourne you know so uh whereas for me to work till 10 or 11 o'clock at night in melbourne i'd be Completely buggered, and it was kind of like, yeah, this is insane. I'm not doing this again. Um, even though, it, you know, obviously going out to functions, that would happen a bit. Whereas, I would often be still in the office in Canberra at eleven or twelve o'clock at night, sort of doing intro stuff or whatever. Um, so, just moving towards a vaguely normal, balanced lifestyle makes a huge difference. I used to get flu bugs and colds varied six, eight times a year when I was a politician. I've had one middling one in about the past three years. You know, and it's just, it's an inherently very unhealthy, stressful lifestyle. Um, so that's, not that I'm qualified to give anybody health advice, but uh, certainly being a politician is not good for your health. Well, you're looking in fine fettle, and thanks very much for taking the time to chat today. Thank really enjoyed the much. conversation. Thanks for listening to the first episode of The Good Life. Next week, I speak with Michael Trail about jumping ship from corporate life to the community sector, raising boys and making a difference.